welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin, and I'm here with Phil Lagasse for Her Majesty and Right of Pod Edition. Welcome to the podcast again, Phil. Thanks, Steph. So uh, we haven't really spoken in over a year, at least on the podcast, and quite a bit has happened on the parliamentary scene and crown scene in Canada. So I wanted to sit down with you to see what your thoughts were on a number of issues. So we're going to talk today about issues surrounding the governor general. You know, when you have a new appointments committee, there's a chief justice who's now acting as administrator. So how does that work? And then I want to look at Parliament one year on from the pandemic. How well has it performed? Have Has there been any innovations that are, are changing things up, some for the better, perhaps some for the worse? And finally, the kind of way national security is fitting or perhaps not fitting into the legislative cycle and what that means for some of the issues that we go on and on and on about on this podcast. So here we go. Let's start with the governor general. So of course, the governor general has stepped down. There was a, a series of controversies. There was a report about bullying, toxic environment, and, and things like that. It was pretty messy. We, we won't get into that. I'm more interested on, on the procedural side here. So can you actually just talk us through like how does a governor general step down and, and what happened in this case? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's, it is quite interesting uh, on a number of levels. Obviously, a, a resignation of governor general is not something that you, uh, A, want to see and B, see often. So that was a, a fairly interesting, and it is a fairly interesting constitutional moment. Equally important, I think, is the fact that we avoided any kind of confrontation that would have necessitated the prime minister having to, to exercise a heavier hand and even potentially threaten to, to go to the queen. So, you know, I, I'm assuming that that didn't happen. I'm assuming that the prime minister presented Madame Payette with you know, the facts at hand of the report and that they, they agreed that she would step down. What it leaves us with now is a situation, unlike in the provinces, I should point out, whereas the provinces, when they don't have a lieutenant governor, are kind of left without an ability to grant royal assent or assign orders in council. At the federal level, the letters patent 1947 provide for an administrator in the event that there is no GG, and that administrator can fulfill all the duties and exercise all the powers of the GG. Now, that just so happens to be the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So Mr. Wagner is both Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and wearing a different hat administrator for Canada. So they are separate functions, and he is wearing two different hats, has two different official capacities. But I think even Minister LeBlanc pointed out that this isn't something that we want to keep going for too long. And therefore, the government has put in place uh, a mechanism to, to find a new GG. Right. So there's a lot to unpack there. The first thing I'm just going to note is I'm just sorry they didn't appoint Amicus, the mascot, as the Supreme Court mascot, as the as the, the new governor general. I think Amicus would have been would have been very good and has the outfit for it, frankly. No, I mean, I, I don't think you're wrong. And in the event that, you know, the UK becomes a republic and there's no more monarch and, and we have no mechanism to recognize who the monarch is, maybe we'll have a, a stuffed owl as as the queen, you know, I wouldn't rule it out. I can't see how it goes wrong. The, the, <laughs> se the second thing I want to ask you, though, just for our audience, can you just remind everyone what letters patents actually mean? Sure. So the letters patent is basically uh, a legal instrument that the queen uses to provide direction to her vice regal representative in this case. 
And effectively what it does is it outlines kind of mechanisms for the delegation of authority and outlines who does what in the event, obviously, as we just noted, but there is no GG and, and things of that nature. So the letters patent is interesting in, in the Canadian context in 1947, because it does kind of two things. It, it, it's not the first set, set of letters patent. We had them earlier. But what this set does is effectively provides a mechanism for the governor general to exercise all of the queen's powers for Canada. And the reason that's important is that it, it basically acts as our our de facto Regency Act. So what it means is that the governor general would be able to exercise all the queen's powers in the event that there was a Regency in the UK or the, the queen was incapacitated. And anyway, we can get into a whole other debate about what that means for Canadian republicanism. But the, the other thing that it does is it does provide this mechanism for what we need to, or what happens when there is no GG or the GG is unable to exercise their capacity, their, their, their functions in Canada. And it does provide therefore this this role of the administrator and so really what the letters patent does is just kind of organize the relationship between the queen and her vice regal representative at a federal level so it's kind of like when crown emergency break glass well it's even more regular than that but it does provide you know it it outlines kind of all the things that the governor general does kind of day to day in the queen's name over and above what's already in the codified constitution acts 1867 but it's also interesting because, you, as you're saying, at the time in 1947, when they were put together, the UK was in the process of passing a Regency Act, and we decided to use this mechanism instead. So as you're saying, yes, it, it does have this kind of break glass mechanism in place. And again, I, I, I really think this has to be stressed that there is no such mechanism at the provincial level, which, you know, the federal government can kind of take their sweet time replacing the governor general if they so choose. But in a provincial situation, this becomes something of a crisis. So we so, end up with Emperor Doug Ford. Well, no, I mean, the, 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 what, it's worse than that. It's just you, as we saw in New Brunswick recently, you basically end up in a situation where bills can't be granted assent and orders in council can't be signed. So you really have to rush to get a new LG, whereas federally, you can kind of take your time uh, because you have an administrator. So that we're actually quite kind of lucky in that sense that federally, at least, there's a mechanism in place to deal with the current situation that we have. Okay, well, the, the provincial thing sounds uh, bad, but I just want to focus on the federal level yep. just for right now. The So, okay, let's get to the Chief Justice then issue. So basically, has there ever been a, a, a time where the Chief Justice has acted as the Governor General? Yes, Boral Askin did it for a while, including, you know, I believe dissolving parliament. So this is, it's certainly not unprecedented by any means. I think what's interesting in this case, though, is that, or at least as, and, you know, lawyers might disagree, but as a political scientist, what I find in interesting is that the previous precedent we have is prior to patriation, prior to the charter and prior to constitutional supremacy. So, so prior time, to 1982. Yeah. So at a time when I think it's fair to say, I don't think this is a controversial statement at a time when the judiciary's power in Canada was not what it is today. Right. So I, I guess this is where my discomfort kind of arises. And here again, people will disagree, but it's just I, I'm I suspect at this stage, we don't want to retain the chief justice as the administrator for very much longer. Not because I don't think that Mr. Wagner is 
completely and utterly capable of fulfilling his two capacities with total and complete respect of, of the barriers between them. But simply because as a, as a perception thing and how the state functions, I would feel more comfortable that the, those two branches of the state remain as separate as they possibly can be. So to break that down, what you're basically saying is the Supreme Court since 1982, since the patriation of the Constitution and the creation of the Charter, has exercised more authority in Canada. And we kind of saw that this week with the carbon tax case that, you know, this that was a decision with major consequences for not just the federal government, but also the provinces. So for someone to have that kind of power that perhaps wasn't existing at a time when other chief justices have acted in that way, having someone act also as the governor general is, is not ideal. And this is something that Minister LeBlanc, as you mentioned earlier, has said. Yeah, I, I just, I know that a lot of people are going to say that it's, it's a concern. There, there's no real concern here because these are utter professionals and they know exactly what they're doing. And I don't disagree with that. To my mind, it's simply, I think that the point of tension is just how much of an outsized role relative to the other institutions of the state does the Supreme Court play in Canada? And, you know, this comes back again. I think that we even saw the, the gut reaction for a lot of people when Madame Payette resigned was, well, just just appointed, just appoint Beverly McLaughlin or appoint, you know, a, a retired Supreme Court justice. And again, it's not that they're not qualified. It's simply, is that our answer for every problem that we ever run into in this country is find me a retired Supreme Court justice. Supreme Court justice. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty it's just, good business to be in. <laughs> no, and again, it's, no, it's not, not a criticism of them. It's just a criticism of our lack of creativity institutionally that we are the only people we can rely on to deal with big, big issues and big offices. So let's bring this now to the appointments committee, which is not, well, it's kind of an innovation, but this was actually an idea of the Harper government. The liberal gov government decided to scrap it and they've now brought it back. Uh, can you explain who this appointment committee is and, and what they're supposed to do? We know they're supposed to appoint a, a new governor general or recommend an appointment of a governor general, but how does this work? Right. So uh, let's highlight a couple of things. So the, the Harper government brought it in and the, the Harper model was that it would, the committee's composition would vary depending on the appointment. So you would have kind of representatives for the, for the different provinces when it came time to recommend the appointment of an LG. But you also had the Canadian Secretary of Queen kind of playing a, a prominent role under, under the Harper government on that committee. I believe maybe that he even chaired it. I'll have to look in my notes on that one. But in the current construct, uh, we don't know if this reconstituted committee will be used for lieutenant governors. We, I'm not sure. It's, it may simply be kind of a one-off for this particular appointment of a governor general, or it may simply be retained for the governor general, but not for the lieutenant governors. I don't know yet. The other point is that under Harper, part of the, the kind of idea of the committee was to ensure that those who were named to vice regal offices were monarchists, or at least understood the, the position well, which is in keeping with the values of that government. I think when we look at the composition of this committee, it's more a question of representing Canadian inclusion and diversity, indigenous perspectives and so forth. So I think the, the, the emphasis is a bit different on this one. And notably, the Canadian Secretary of the Queen is not involved in this committee, in part because the position is currently held by somebody within the Privy Council office. And it wouldn't really make sense, given where the office is now, to have that person on the committee. 
Right. So that position has changed from what it was under the Harper government. Yeah, exactly. One, one last point to make about it is, is a committee magic, right? <laughs> Does it solve all problems, right? And I think this is where, you know, I would, I would simply kind of highlight a note of caution, right? People say, well, you know, all the problems kind of resulted from the fact that there wasn't a committee. Well, okay, let's, let's take a step back. Do we know for sure that another committee would not have recommended Madame Payette? I, I don't know if we can say that. I'm going to put on my kind of skeptic hat here and say, yes, a committee is important because it helps kind of identify good people and it helps looking at the background. But ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, the most important thing you can do to ensure that these offices are filled by good people or the, or people who are well suited to them, I should say, is uh, taking the offices as seriously as you can. And I think that's the, uh, that's where I hope we're getting to of recognizing that the people appointed to these committees can get you into trouble if, if they're not the right people for them. I mean, I, I take your point in the sense that I, I don't know anyone who's ever felt reassured when, you know, we have this terrible problem. Don't worry, we've sent a, we've set up a committee. <laughs> um, it's it's <laughs> usually not the words that inspire confidence, but let's see what happens. I mean, they did it before and we'll see what happens again. So the next thing I want to talk about is Parliament one year on from the start of the pandemic. Now, you came on uh, last year and we, we had a conversation about some of the challenges that were, were going to be held. I'd be really interested in your assessment as to how Parliament has managed this crisis. If you think that there's been any innovations that uh, have been positive or perhaps even negative, and what grade do you give, Professor? Well, look, I mean, I, I think in the spring, some of us were pretty concerned about what seemed to be a marginalization of the legislature. And that's not exactly a theme that's limited to Canada. Anybody who, who looks at the kind of the debate in the United Kingdom is going to see a very similar kind of concern, right? This is a concern for every legislature in countries dealing with this issue. How has Canada fared? I think we've, I think it's fair to say, or at least from my perspective, that it's still not the ideal number of sittings. Uh, the prorogation in the fall didn't help. But all that said, I think the, the teleconferencing, the remote sessions, uh, including, you know, committees in particular have allowed the opposition to hold the government to account uh, and they have allowed for proper scrutiny. So parliament has adapted as necessary. Does it mean that we should be complacent? No, obviously not. I still worry and about the fact that it's uh, parliament was not as present as it could have and should have been, but that's going to be a debate that we're going to have for, for another day. Uh, we're going to have to see how it all pan pans out after it's over. I but, you know, I mean, fundamentally, I think uh, certainly in terms of parliamentary officials, they did everything that they could to make it work. I think it has worked, but I, I just like to see parliament more present overall in the national debate and discussion. And I think that's that's not just true in a pandemic, but that's true generally. So that sounds pretty positive. That sounds like, uh, I mean, coming from yourself, who's, you know, doesn't always, I don't always associate you with looking on the bright side, Phil, no offense. That's why we have you on the podcast. But I mean, that's, that's not the worst assessment uh, you could give. It sounds like it's maybe something of a B or a B plus. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a, a solid kind of B, B plus is just because look, I mean, it did turn around. It did. It's not like it, it got completely shuttered. I, Prorogation, bad. Shenanigans around this idea of who you can't and can't call a committee's bad. You know, this type of stuff. The fact that we're still waiting on the budget, but it's now finally coming down. You know, overall, my the concerns that were being voiced in the spring are, are more muted, right? People are no longer saying that you can just get rid of parliament and parliament shouldn't be sitting. And the government's initial efforts to kind of ride this thing out 
without any parliamentary scrutiny, were rightly, you know, pushed and rethought. So it's been a process. I think it's a good process and it's it's performed relatively well. So I think on the whole, we can we can be fairly positive about it, even if generally speaking, we should want more parliament, not less parliament. So, I mean, I just also just want to give a shout out if any of the translators are listening. I'm told that, you know, the having to work remotely has been very difficult on them. When I testified at committee, they, they were quite keen to stress that having to do simultaneous translation in remotely has been difficult. So as you said, you, you gave a shout out to the officers there. And I think uh, that's really important too. Do you think any of the innovations we've seen will stick around? Like, will we see more hybrid sessions of parliament as a result of this. One of the things that I think is kind of interesting is they they now have an app where the MPs can vote using an app. That's kind of neat. So will we see more of this in the future? Well, I I think it'll probably make remote testimony a bit easier. I mean, it was already in place before, but like teaching, right? You and I both know it suddenly kind of opens up different possibilities that in the past we might've been somewhat resistant to embrace. We can, I hope a lot of this will be incorporated into future Parliament. That said, I think the remote voting one, we have to approach with some caution. We don't necessarily want to get MPs and senators further away from the Hill than they already are. So I I guess on, on some of this, I, I can see using these tools to enhance how committees operate, to make them uh, easier for people. I would be less inclined to uh, fully embrace a construct where parliamentarians are less present physically once the pandemic is over. You know, there, there's a lot that occurs, kind of the hidden wiring, and there's a lot of literature on this in the British parliamentary context in particular. But a lot of what happens in parliament is not what we're seeing kind of during question period or on, at committee. A lot of it is what's happening behind closed doors in the hallways. And that type of thing. And in particular, I would note just the ability of MPs to, from different parties to kind of understand one another and, and empathize with one another. You, you do want them to be able to have some personal contact. And again, I think this is true of any professional setting during the pandemic. It's been, it's, we've, we've all kind of managed to learn in, in, a, in a digital environment, but it's uh, just like a professor probably wants to be able to meet their students face-to-face and interact with them and meet their colleagues face-to-face and interact with them. Well, the same would be true for parliamentarians. So, yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, anyone who's gone to a conference knows it's not the actual meetings of the conference where, where the business gets done. It's always on the margins. And I think that I, I can see that definitely also being being true for Parliament. Hell, it was true in model Parliament back when I was a, a, a wee young undergrad. So the last thing I want to talk to you today about really, though, is, you know, we talked, okay, Parliament functioned, but one of the areas where I think we both agree that there's been a struggle is in the area of national security and national security legislation. We have a tendency in this country to pass bills, national security bills that are hundreds of pages long or, or you know, they, they, they tend to be omnibus bills, right? They, they, it's like seven acts in one bill that have to be parsed out and, and things like this. Now they did it in, they introduced the bill, the National Security Act in, in 2017, brought about a whole series of changes, but that was something they had campaigned on. It also went through the process extremely slowly, too slowly for my liking, because I was worried they were actually going to run out of time. But this is something I want to talk to you about today, which is Uh, kind of our our culture around national security legislation and the way we draft it, the way we pass it, and the way it's generally not dealt with 
in Canada in, in the way that we see in other countries. So, you know, I, I, and, and the best example of this that I can think of is something I yell about on Twitter quite a bit, which is Bill C-3 which was a bill that was supposed to bring enhanced oversight and scrutiny of the RCMP and CBSA. Now, I think there was a lot of weaknesses in that bill. I think that the, the, the oversight and review should be much more robust of these, of these various you know, enforcement agencies, but the bill died and it's never been brought back. Of course, the government might say that there's a pandemic going on and granted there is, but I mean, other things are, are being done. We're seeing, you know, announcements being made on critical infrastructure, the environment, things like this. But, you know, some of these, particularly in the area of Black Lives Matter and, and, you know, concern about the way we're doing enforced law enforcement activities in this country, this seems like something that's pretty pressing and pretty important. So you've done a lot of comparative work on parliaments and how they address security issues. So I, I would love to hear your thoughts on, on national security legislation in the Canadian context. Yeah, so I, I before I kind of get into the comparative piece, one thing I will echo is in past discussions that we've had around things like, do you put authority for certain things on prerogative or statute? One of my hesitations around moving towards a statutory framework is, is, is precisely the fact that our parliament legislates so slowly and has, and if new things pop up that you need to address, our parliament is not necessarily very good at doing that in a timely fashion, right? So on, on previous uh, podcasts, you've talked about, for instance, CSIS and metadata after the federal court kind of ruled on that and how long it took parliament to then address that issue. Similarly, allowing CSIS to contravene aspects of the criminal code when it came to counterterrorism activities there, again, the federal court kind of quashes, you know, their interpretation of how they could use crime immunity. And you have to wait for parliament to kind of get its act together to address that lacuna. And to be fair, we saw, you know, the CSIS director, David Vignon, say basically the same thing with regards to, you know, the collection of, of what's now seen as foreign intelligence. Of course, you know, you can go back and listen to the podcast about why that's foreign intelligence activities and things like this. But basically that when the Supreme Court comes down and says, no, you can't do this thing that you kind of have always done because the way that data is actually stored and where it's stored has changed. Parliament does not adjust. And there was almost this plea in his speech for Parliament to actually legislate in this space and just make its will to the courts known, whatever that may be. No, and I think that's exactly right, is the fact that if you will have the federal court kind of being very robust in its interpretation of the CSIS Act, and on one of the, the most recent uh, episodes of Intrepid, you had our colleague uh, West just kind of talking about, you know, interpretations of the CSIS Act that seem to run counter to what the interpretations were previously, and that then begs for to clarify what exactly is the nature of the services authority. And if Parliament can't do that, with due speed, you know, that's a problem. That's a real issue. It's a which, huge which issue, isn't to yeah. say that, Which isn't to say that you have to land on whatever the hell the executive wants, right? It's quite the opposite because it's a dual problem. When parliament is so slow on when it comes to legislating, you get, you get two problems, which is not only are you not keeping authorities up to date necessary, but then it becomes a mad rush to get the authorities that you need through. So you don't have the scrutiny and debate that you might want to have because everybody's just trying to get this thing through, right? That's not ideal either. And that speaks to your, your point about the omnibus nature of some of this legislation. So, you know, as much, it, it gets back very much to, to a point that, that needs to be made and made again, which is that parliamentary strength and executive strength aren't in opposition. The two tend to go together. So the stronger the parliament, 
the better the executive, right? Because if the executive needs authority, then parliament should have the strength and scrutiny to be able to provide it or deny it or recraft it in a way that, that it deems appropriate. When the executive doesn't have a legislature that can respond effectively, it also ends up being weakened, right? So just to right, give an example- Right, because it can't get its agenda through. Right, and especially when you have the courts, right, that are there kind of acting as a third party, reinterpreting or interpreting legislation as it sees fit to ensure rights protection or whatever else, you want the executive and the legislature kind of getting their act together. And it then allows the courts also to do their job more effectively because they're not worried as much that if they quash this, then the whole thing kind of falls apart, right? So we all benefit, the three branches of the state and the, the community and those that are concerned about these powers all would benefit from greater parliamentary strength, bandwidth, and scrutiny in this area. And just to give a kind of comparative perspective, on some of this. I mean, anybody who looks at Australian national security legislation is it's just a, it's in a different world. It's it's in a different level of magnitude in terms of how much they legislate, their parliamentary capacity to scrutinize. They have legislative committees and research committees. I mean, they're, they're very much set up to do this work in a way that we're simply not. And as a result, the Australian legislation is far more robust, far clearer, and and is updated on a far more regular and consistent. So I just want to give a shout out to Jeff Collins here, because he always uses this term Australia idealizing, that we tend to look at Australia as better in terms of parliamentary scrutiny, in terms of, of shipbuilding and whatever else there is out there. And I think, but I think this is one case where I think it's legitimate. They, they do a really good job. But you were involved in, in a number of projects that look at different countries and how they do this kind of national security oversight legislation and things like this. Are there other countries that we should be looking to as well? Well, I think this touches on the the broader question as well of how can Parliament do its job effectively if it can't have uh, classified conversations? So the question then comes, can we have parliamentarians being given security clearances in order to be able to do scrutiny work on classified and also potentially do better scrutiny of, of proposed legislation because you can have classified conversations with the executive about what exactly they're hoping to achieve and how it's going to be achieved. Now, in other countries, they've evolved such that, you know, in the United Kingdom, in Australia, they, they do have parliamentary committees with members with clearances. And I think that makes a huge difference. Belgium is even more interesting. It has a classified or security cleared committee looking at military acquisitions and expeditionary military operations. So there there are practices that we can follow here. And I'm hoping that eventually we will have a veritable parliamentary committee composed of, of senators and members of parliament who will be able to be afforded security clearances while still retaining their parliamentary privilege in order to to do some of this work. Now, would that be the natural evolution of the current executive-based National Security Intelligence Committee parliamentarians? Maybe it could exist alongside NSICOP, or it becomes what NSICOP eventually evolves into. That's what occurred in the UK, for instance. So we're, we're taking baby steps to get there, but I think it would be uh, quite interesting and, and an important development for Canada to eventually get to a point where we have a veritable committee of parliament that is able to look at national security issues with members who are have the proper clearances while having enough assurance, right, that they can retain their parliamentary privilege while performing that, that job and not being in the 
classic Canadian way, kind of paranoid about what's going to come out in the public domain if we do that. Right. And I think this has always been a, a traditional fear of the national security agencies themselves. And I, I've seen former national security officials often say we can't trust parliament, we can't trust parliamentarians, it's too partisan, it's hyper, you know, they're going to leak all the information. So far with NSI COP, I would say that that hasn't happened. I think NSI COP has done a relatively good job. I don't know to the extent that they're sitting in this pandemic world and they're, they're, there may be some issues with that, but they, they are going ahead. Uh, I guess just for the sake of our audience, let's, let's just clarify here. So a committee of parliamentarians, and, and I get this uh, from you and, and Craig Forces, that the committee of parliamentarians is the committee that is just, ha- just happens to be made up of sitting parliamentarians, both senators and MPs. What you're talking about would be a parliamentary committee, which would have MPs on it. And the, another difference would be that whereas NSI COP is focused pretty much on review and and efficacy, this committee, this this with clearance, would be specifically for the purpose of reviewing, proposing, and challenging legislation that's being put forward by the executive. So a couple of things. I think part of the, just getting back to the question of, of clearances and why why NSICOP ended up being kind of a compromise that, that both parliament and the executive and the security services could, could accept was that the, the NSICOP Act provides that the, the parliamentarians who sit on that committee do, cannot use parliamentary privilege to disclose any information that they learn as part of parliamentary proceedings. So can we just, just a quick review for our audience or, or those who don't know, parliamentary p- privilege, of course, is the ability for an MP to say what they want in the House of Commons and they cannot be charged for it. Right. So basically the, the parliamentary privilege would normally protect an MP or a senator if as part of parliamentary proceedings, they were to disclose information that outside of parliament would subject them to the Security of Information Act, right? They can do so without the Security of Information Act applying to them because they're, they're doing it as part of a proceeding in parliament. Now, the NSICOP Act actually ensures that the, the parliamentarians that are part of the committee cannot have recourse to parliamentary privilege and that anything that they disclose would be subject to the Security of Information Act. Interesting footnote on that. Uh, Ryan Alford, who's a law professor, is actually challenging that in court, trying to say that you, the parliament could not waive its own parliamentary or the privilege of its members in the NSICOP space. I don't think it'll work simply because parliament can waive its privileges. So it has done so in legislation, but we'll see where it goes. But if you were to set up a veritable committee of parliament that that could use parliamentary privilege, what would the advantages and disadvantages be? The, the first advantage would be that it would create this opportunity, this, this fire alarm, basically, where something that was learned that is quite material to national security could be you know, disclosed in the public interest. Now, some obviously, I can imagine our friends in the National Security Committee are probably like tearing their hair out hearing me say that. But look, I mean, the fact of the matter is, are we really less mature than the United States, than Belgium, than the UK. I mean, other countries have managed this. Is our information so ultra super secret that we couldn't handle the giving that responsibility to parliamentarians? The other point is that parliamentary privilege is not completely absolute in the sense that if you were to disclose something that you learned that was that as a parliamentarian that would normally violate the Security of Information Act, the House of Parliament in question where you're sitting could punish you. And this does occur 
in New Zealand and other places where if you disclose something you learned in a closed session of committee, the house itself can, can punish you for having done so. So there are mechanisms in place to, to kind of bear in mind here. But to your point, I think the why it's important to have this committee, I think it would be important to review the legislation, but also to review a whole bunch of things that are over and above what NSICOP is able to do. So just as an example, military operations that are currently being dealt with at the Defense Committee can't look at questions of, of, that are classified or operationally sensitive. And we may say, okay, that's fine, but who else is doing it, right? Who else is, is really digging in? into operations, special operations and other things of that matter, right? It would, I think if it was properly constructed and done carefully, it would add a, an additional degree of parliamentary understanding about national Canadian national security. It can be done in a way that the information is, is responsibly handled and it would arguably create a committee that could review legislation specifically uh, pertaining to national security in a way that's better understood, right, by the members. And I think that's the the real, the one major shortfall when it comes to NSICOP is that it doesn't perform a legislative scrutiny function because it's not a parliamentary uh, committee. Right. So tying a lot of these threads together, you know, people in Ottawa love to talk about an upcoming election, even when I don't think we're even close to having an upcoming election. But there's a lot of talk about there being an upcoming election. So what happens if we have an election while pandemic is going on, while parliament is hybrid, while we don't have a governor general, what happens? Well, luckily here again at the federal level, and just to contrast with the provinces, uh, right now, Newfoundland is going through a pandemic election and it ain't pretty. Is it ever? Oh, 10 week long, <laughs> uh, 10 week long election. You know, just the chief electoral officer there is claiming authorities that, you know, a lot of people have difficulty understanding where the hell he's claiming this authority from. So the doctrine of necessity seems to be weighing pretty heavily in uh, Newfoundland right now. Luckily, the Canadian legislation around elections would would allow for greater flexibility. So I, I don't think we'd have to be as concerned. And uh, again, having the administrator there means there is somebody who could accept the prime minister's request to dissolve. And at this stage in the life of the current parliament, there would be no expectation of any discretion ex exercised on part of the vice regal representative to deny that request to dissolve parliament. So there's no real controversy there. I think the the downside in terms of the administrator would be if a new election produces another hung parliament or, but in that case, it was more uh, far closer or there was kind of tension around government formation that would not be fun for an administrator. But I think the, the big issue here, though, is, as you pointed out, a lot of pundits in Ottawa are talking about an election. I'm skeptical. You know, right now, the, the government's going to table its budget. It, it's probably going to want to wait until, you know, the country is vaccinated. I, I just don't see a real push part of the governing party to want to provoke a vote of no confidence. And I don't see them. I don't see the prime minister requesting a, dis, a dissolution. So I'm, you know, I could be proved totally wrong here, but I think the, those that are talking about an early election, as they always do, are probably doing so because it's an easy column, right? And my last question. So would you, would you want to be the governor general? I do not want to be the governor general. Because I, uh, I think it would be funny. You know, I think it would be funny. I would, I would enjoy watching that. No, no, it's, it's one of these things, right? Like we, we often say like, should, should somebody who's 
who is a doctor be health minister? And my answer is always no, <laughs> right? You don't want somebody who actually studies these things to actually hold the position that they study. Yeah, you need um, someone who understands it. You need somebody who understands it, but it's, you, it, it, oftentimes what you want is somebody in these positions, either ministerial or vice regal, to be somebody who knows how to exercise good political judgment and academics. For Do not. I am not. I have no judgment. We're not good at, we don't exercise good judgment. <laughs> good practical judgment. We are not, uh, we are not paragons of good practical judgment, which is, part, you know, kind of why oftentimes political practitioners kind of roll their eyes at a lot of academics because we say things like, you know, oh, why, why can't you talk this way? Why can't you do it? Because they live in a different world, right? They, uh, the political realm is different from the academic one. And the vice regal realm is certainly different from the academic one. But even more importantly, like imagine, you know, being governor general, uh, we wouldn't even be allowed to tweet. That would be the innovation. That would be the innovation. <laughs> Anyways, governor general tweets, tweets from the crown, tweets from yeah, the tweet. crown, tweets from the Canadian crown. I can see it happening. But Phil, thank you so much. Even if you're disappointing me with your, your not becoming the governor general, it's so it's always so great to have you on the podcast. It's, it's a lot of fun and I always learn something. So thanks for this. And I can't wait to have you on again. Maybe we can get you and Craig to sit down and, and argue about, you know, crown prerogative again, just for, for old time's sake. Oh, that's, that's coming down the pike. I, I, at some point, the prerogative debate will arise again. So it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's a promise or a threat, but we will, we will, we will keep our listeners informed. Thank you so much. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers.